Hi, and welcome to a special holiday edition of This Should Be a Podcast. All right. I'm Jill Norton. And I'm Jay Norton. I mean, Boninsinga. <laughs> so happy-, happy winter solstice activity, yeah, happy- non-denominational, politically correct event. Happy holidays celebration. to all. <laughs> um, yeah, we are going to jump right in. We have a special episode today where Jay is going to read one of his stories that is uh, got a great story behind it, but it's uh, going to be a little bit longer than usual. So, you know, settle in. Yeah, we're calling this our, our holiday epic edition <laughs> of epic. This Should Be a Podcast. <laughs> I think epic is setting our sights a little high. <laughs> well, you haven't heard the story yet. That's true. <laughs> all right. So with that, I'm going to let Jay uh, jump in and uh, go ahead. Well, happy holidays, everybody. And um, I'm just going to jump into this story. I was invited years ago to write sort of a a film noir holiday story by a German editor for a German anthology called Todlich Gaben. Die Spannendsten Weinschacht Christmas. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's the name of the of the um, of the book <laughs> that came out a couple years ago. Um, but I was really honored. I, many of these stories that are in this book are written by, you know, sort of world class thriller writers. So I don't know how I snuck in there, but um, I really pulled out all the stops. And I'm going to read a story I've never read aloud uh, in public or private. Uh, (laughs) And um, it is kind of an epic for me in in terms of short fiction. Um, It's historical fiction or maybe alternate history fiction, I would call it. And it's a little bit longer than the short stories that I've been reading in the series. But I think after a while, you know, if you go with it, it'll make sense. This is called The True Cause of the Great Depression. For many years, long after the events of that fateful time had been relegated to legend, revisionist histories of how the stranger had first appeared most of them apocryphal, would regularly surface in the pages of popular periodicals of the day. Beloved monthlies, such as Saturday Evening Post and Ladies' Companion with a jovial J.C. Liondecker covers, of cherubic children at play and their advertisements for Ovaltine beverage mix and imperial leather soap, would carry small items relating eyewitness reports of how the mysterious old man had first insinuated himself into the beleaguered American psyche. Some said they first glimpsed the stranger emerging from the dust on the edge of a squalid oaky encampment outside of Tulsa. Others swore they first saw him disembarking from a tramp steamer on the shores of Nova Scotia. But none of these tall tales could withstand the rigors of substantiation. According to official archives from President Roosevelt's Works Progress Administration Folklore Project, only two confirmed eyewitness accounts have survived. These matching accounts place the first official sighting of the old man on the edge of a hobo jungle 
just west of Pineville, Oregon, on the morning of March 23, 1930. The weather was harsh that morning, even for early spring in the Pacific Northwest. A low-pressure cell had roared down across the Cascades from Vancouver, dumping about six inches of powder on the Crooked River Valley. The hobos along the old southern Pacific line were dug in deep under the Douglas firs, huddled in meager lean-tos of oily particle boards and discarded boxcar tarps, their fires dwindling throughout the night. The first pale rays of dawn brought another day of misery. Hey, you hear that? The first eyewitness spoke in a shivering wheeze, a gangly, middle-aged man in rags and fingerless gloves. He went by the name of Greeny. He hadn't slept well the previous night, and now he was trying to draw sustenance from a tin cup of cheap corn whiskey and weak coffee. The air smelled of wood smoke and brimstone. His companion peered out from under a ratty, torn blanket, blinking roomy eyes at the light. What's that you say? Shh, listen. The man under the blanket, a rotund specimen in brakeman's overalls, held his breath and listened. The sound seemed to be coming from a pile of ragged blankets covered with snow about 15 feet away. It sounded like a mewling animal, like a gut-shot dog in its death throes. A faint, high, keening moan. Grab the spike setter, Greeny whispered, putting down his cup. He painfully rose on creaking knees, brushing the snow off his shoulders, flexing his frigid, greasy hands. The fat one scrambled for the rusty hammer that lay on the ground next to the bedroll. Primitive weapons were a standard accoutrement for the stumble bum in those days. Ever since the crash of 29, people were meaner. The dogs were hungrier, bolder, wilder. There were fewer clotheslines out, fewer breadlines from which to scavenge. The big guy, the one named Cinderbox Sam, got his frozen mitts around the spike hammer and raised it. Fifteen feet away, the moaning abruptly ceased. Get out of here, yelled the fat one, taking a step toward the mound of snow-dusted blankets with the hammer at the ready. All at once, the pile of blankets erupted. Watch it! Watch it! Greeny called out, shielding his greasy face from the commotion. In a cloud of white dust, an ancient figure burst out of the blankets, flailing his big arms at the daylight like a giant baby being born. He was gnarled and scarred and looked like an emaciated, derelict Viking in a stolen parka. He wore trousers fashioned out of stained buckskins. Who the... who the hell... Greeny and the fat man both jerked backward with a start, nearly slipping on the frozen, rocky earth. Oh, God! Oh, Jesus! The stranger fell to his knees, slobbering on himself. Ice crystals in his beard mingled with snot. He was as skinny as a corpse. Easy now, easy! Cinderbox Sam held the hammer menacingly. 
I'm sorry. Please. Ah, oh, Christ, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean to do it. The stranger was on his hands and knees now, sobbing. Calm down, brother. The stranger heaved in a breath, and he looked up as though seeing the hobos for the first time. His skin was frostbitten, and clothes and boots were worn and bedraggled from traveling a great distance. I... I ain't got no... I, I didn't mean to do it. The two hobos looked at each other. Finally, Greeny took another step toward the stranger and spoke in a very low, very measured voice, as though trying to corral a rabid Doberman. Uh, uh, do, 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 do what? The old man on the ground looked up at the hobo. You, you, you ain't gonna kill me? Greeny sucked his cheek and shivered. Well, that, that depends on what you've done. The bony Viking wiped his icy, mucusy beard. I didn't do... I, 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 didn't, I didn't mean to do nothing. Who in the tarnation are you? Cinderbox demanded. What's your name? The old man sobbed. <laughs> See... That's just it. I don't know. I don't know who I am. Again, the hobos shared a suspicious glance. Greeny watched the old coot blubber. The hell do you mean? You don't know your own name? The old man cried and shook his head. So something terrible happened. Ah, oh, Jesus, I, I, I can't even tell you. All I got is the nightmares. Over and over I see the damn thing. I think I, I think I, I think I done something awful. Now, now take it easy, brother. Cinderbox Sam lowered the hammer. He could tell this old rum pot was fairly harmless. Probably nutty as a soup sandwich, but definitely not dangerous. No, 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 no. The old codger lifted himself to his feet with great anguish and effort. I did a terrible thing. I, I, I know that. They're going to get me for it. I got, I got to get out of here. I got, I got to get out of here. He started backing away with a stumbling, lame stagger. I got to get out of here. Wait. Greeny was intrigued all of a sudden. He, he had to know. He shivered and raised his hands in deference to the geezer. The, the nightmares. What, what was it? What was it you did? The old man swallowed his agony as he backed away, his yellow sagging eyes widening like shiny buffalo nickels. I killed him. Killed who? The answer came out on one tortured breath between sobs right before the old coot turned and fled. I killed Santa Claus! For one long, thunderstruck moment, the two hobos watched in silence as the ancient stranger whirled and trundled away into the swirling veils of snow until he disappeared.
In those days, very few souls had any clue that the source of the great tribulations gripping the land at that time actually began before the stock market crash of 1929. In fact, the troubles began way up north, far, far above the brutal, blasted ice fields of the Northwest Territories. At that time, the Queen Elizabeth Islands were even meaner than they are today, which is saying something, because even now you'd be a fool to make your way north of the McClintock Channel. And if you did, you'd want to bring along a boxcar full of firewood and provisions, because the wind is a wild beast up there. It can chew through steel and drive a person insane with its constant shrieking refrain. And if you were mad enough to cross the Perry Channel and travel even further north, all the way to the end of Point Eureka, what you would find is the land plunging away into the alabaster mists of hell. The horizon line vanishes and the average temperature dips to 65 below zero and the nights go on forever. And even back then, before the Industrial Age had infected the Great White North with its cancer, the Inuit and the Laps and the Samis had long ago left these angry ice shelves to the polar bear and the walrus. And only the hardiest of those creatures survived, hunkering down beneath that rime of endless ice, eking out a living on lichens and frozen moss, So it comes as no surprise that very few mortal souls, if any, had ever glimpsed the nameless community that lay on the edge of Ellesmere Island. If you blinked as you passed it, or if perhaps you looked away for just a moment, you might miss it. Despite its immense length and breadth, it ranged along a five-mile stretch of, gra- of glacier land, and it radiated a kind of otherworldly corrosion, a line of magnificently ornate chimney spires, once grand and colorfully striped, huffing the smoke of magical production lines. Now, now bordered the colony like skeletal remains, all dead cold and desiccated. The candy cane columns along the northern edge of the village now stood scorched and blackened with neglect. The windows of the once whimsical workshops were shuttered. The holly trees shriveled and dead. The ice sculptures of angels and snowmen and gingerbread boys burnished by the winds into featureless stalagmites. Even the great south gate, with its festive lintel of carved marble bells and yule logs, its holiday tympanum rising nearly fifty meters into the gray sky, now stood dark and covered with a patina of decay. In just over a year, the magic village had transformed into a gothic ruin. It was almost inconceivable that only 13 months earlier, in the wake of the terrible event, a pair of figures emerged from that same south gate in search 
of the man responsible for all this misery. Moving like ghosts through the ashen haze of the ice field, the twosome wore caribou skins and ermine-trimmed parkas and carried packs laden with weapons dismantled into unrecognizable components and spoke very few words to each other. An observer, had there been one around at that point to observe, might have misjudged the pair's collective stature. The arctic light and space can play tricks on the senses, but upon close and prolonged scrutiny, one would be forced to conclude that these two individuals were either children or dwarves. Trudging with snowshoes through the unforgiving crust, communicating with hand signals and nods, they looked both fragile and relentless. They moved with the purpose of salmon spawning. It took them nearly three months to negotiate the Northwest Territories, ultimately crossing into the land to which they believed the man had fled. Others had already found the death scene in the wilderness of British Columbia, the magical team strewn across a barren snowfield, their awful pathetic carcasses burned beyond recognition. Now it was up to these two diminutive bounty hunters to bring balance back to the world. The twosome rode a dog sled across Bathurst Island and then slipped into the cargo hold of a whaling ship crossing Viscount Melville Sound, riding all the way to Hudson Bay without speaking a single word to each other. Once the ship had docked in northern Quebec, the twosome set out on foot once again, acquiring a kayak in Nunavik and portaging between the frozen rivers when necessary, moving unseen among the indigenous villages, invisible to all but the most gifted children and scattered herds of reindeer. It is a little-known fact that reindeer are the only mammals on earth other than certain children that are able to see elves. By the time the twosome reached Ottawa, it was nearly spring. The pair hadn't taken nourishment for many weeks, and they were near death. When they reached the northern trunk of the Canadian Pacific Railway, they hopped a freight bound for Toronto and searched for sustenance in the shadows of the cattle cars. Elves subsist upon sugar and dairy products, so it was a stroke of luck in the moldering hay that they found a life-saving Hereford. What if we never find him? ventured the younger of the two sprites as he tugged at the udders in the dark, filling a rusty-faded eight o'clock coffee can. At a youthful 102 years old, and the youngest member of the Special Forces, Seamus the Elf was always full of questions. We'll find him, all right, the older elf grunted, wiping the milk from his dark face. Action must be taken, laddie. The older elf went by the name of Dooley, and was as grizzled as a pixie can be, with dark, parchment-like skin and the eyes of a jackal. Contrary to fairy tales and folk stories, not all Christmas elves are adorable. There are sanitation worker elves with oily skin and nasty dispositions. There are demented elves relegated to retirement homes. 
And there are the elves of the special forces, the fixers, the secret police, who operate underground in the back channels. Seamus and Dooley were the skip tracers of the special unit, the most skilled of all the gnomes. But Dooley, how in the name of cinnamon sticks will we do it? Between gulps of the tepid milk, Seamus twitched and frowned at the conundrum. Why, he could be anywhere in the lower 48. Seamus, he could have changed his name for all we know. He could already be. That's quite enough, Seamus. But how, Dooley? How will we do it? The older elf did not reply. He merely turned and gazed through the slats of the cattle car as the train wended through the deep blue Ontario twilight. The eldest sprite did not know it then, but he and his comrade were about to become part of an infamous misadventure that would span more time than either elf could imagine in their darkest dreams. Nearly 18 months had passed since the incident in the hobo jungle. After fleeing the scene, the amnesiac wandered aimlessly eastward without plan or purpose, eastward toward no particular destination, toward no fixed point. All he wanted was to evade the faceless, shapeless pursuers on his tail, the invisible hellhounds, the little ones. Traveling mostly at night, the half-mad old man in rags and tears stumbled from back alley to vacant lot, skid row to deserted farm, moving in the general direction of the Midwest, living off scraps from garbage heaps and church missions, the guilt, a malignant tumor in the pit of his soul, eating him alive. He passed through shantytown and slum, squatter's camp and godforsaken ghetto. It was the spring of 1931, and the depression had set in like a fever that would not break. To add insult to injury, a horrible drought had gripped the country for over a year now. Farms had dried up, crops wilting away, rivers and streams shriveling like hardened arteries. The very soil cracked and fissured as though a consumptive disease had infected the land. On the border of Indiana, on the 15th of May, the old man ran across his first Hooverville. Named for Herbert Hoover, the recalcitrant U.S. president who believed that relief should be left to the private sector. And the answer to all the torments of the damned was to do Nothing. Hoovervilles came in all shapes and sizes, but they all shared the same garish scent of human degradation. Victims of foreclosures and bankruptcies. Entire families with nary a pot in which to piss would huddle in giant makeshift tent cities, cobbled together with spit and spore. This one the one outside Crawfordsville, Indiana, the one upon which the amnesiac stumbled that terrible May night, was immeasurably huge. As far as the eye could see, thousands of downtrodden and diseased, 
huddled in reeking sheds and shacks, clinging to the edge of a half-mile-long dry riverbed. Overcome with a dawning horror, the amnesiac fled into the darkness of a fallow beanfield that night, and he kept on fleeing and fleeing as fast as his cadaverous old legs would carry him, as though he could outrun the horrible realization spreading through his marrow. He made this happen. He brought this misery on the world. And now the world was dying. And all he had to show for it was a devouring guilt and a recurring nightmare that showed him over and over, like a hellish Nickelodeon, how he had destroyed the sleigh, the eight tiny reindeer, and, of course, the driver in a paroxysm of fiery rage. A few miles south of Muncie, his ancient limbs finally gave out. He collapsed in the overgrown brambles of a deserted farm, and prayed for death to finally come and take him away. He had tried to kill himself on more than one occasion since waking up in the snows of British Columbia nearly three years ago. Once in a fetid alley outside Portland, he tried to hang himself by fixing a tow rope to a fire escape trestle. The trestle had broken under the scant weight of his bones and sent him plunging into a dumpster. A few months later, alone in a freight car somewhere in Nebraska, he had tried to open his wrist with a broken Jack's beer bottle, but he was so emaciated he couldn't even find a vein. When the sheriff's deputies finally found him in that barren field outside Muncie, he was as close to death as he had yet come, and the boys had to carry him away in a horse cart. They took him to a welfare hospital in Fort Wayne for observation. His weight was down to a mere 102 pounds, and he was dangerously anemic. They tried to nurse him back to health, but he refused nourishment of any kind, and when he was finally able to speak, his delirious tale convinced the doctors that he belonged in a sanitarium. The Howard Phillips Eldritch Inebriate Asylum in Cleveland, Ohio, was where the amnesiac made his temporary home for the next seven months. He was fed intravenously for a time, and they talked to him every morning for 16 weeks, and he never changed his story. Uh, <clears throat> let me ask you again, John. The young female doctor with the tortoiseshell glasses and clipboards said to the old man early one gray January morning, John, as in John Doe, which is all they could think of calling the old gent, a smartly dressed woman with horn-rimmed eyeglasses and pedantic manner thinly veiled her prettiness. Dr. Jessamy Sarah Eisel sat on a wooden schoolroom desk in a desolate white chamber lined with barred windows. The hyena yelps of the insane echoed out in the hallway, and the air smelled of disinfectant and vomit. Outside the filthy windows, a dry winter wind coughed against the glass. Now, now when you say they're coming to get you, whom are you referring to exactly again?
The old man, skin and bones now, his flesh the color of stale bread, his skeletal fingers clutched together in his lap like a phalanx of ivory, sat on a folding chair, staring at the scarred parquet floor. I told the other doctor already. I told them about a hundred thousand times. The little ones. The elves is what I told them. Now, now, that's elves? Dr. Jessamy Eisel was practiced at suppressing her emotions and feelings when interacting with the mentally ill. The flat, colorless tone with which she pronounced the word elves was part and parcel of this approach. She might as well have said the word demons or monsters or pink elephants for that matter. The old man twitched, but didn't look up. He had been in the asylum for over six months now, shuffling the hallways, mumbling to himself, wreathing through sleepless nights, just waiting for the inevitable. But he had yet to elaborate on the nature of the elves for any of the physicians. On this dismal January morning, however, the old man was for some reason feeling inordinately expansive. Well... They ain't what you call regular elves. Dr. Eisel wrote something in her clipboard and then looked up. Now, by regular, you mean the ones in Santa's workshop, I'm assuming. Building toys and such? They're in my dream, the old man muttered into the floor. They're the soldiers, the guards. They're the mean ones. These are Santa's soldiers? Yep. Santa needs an army? The old man shrugged. <laughs> You'd be surprised this day and age. Isil wrote some more and then looked up. John, I, I have to ask you this again. Why you? The old man swallowed air and looked at the doctor. You just want to hear me say it again, don't you? Like you're... You're looking in on a freak show. Well, this business about you killing Kris Kringle, the woman ventured. The old man shook his head and looked at the floor. Look around you, Doc. Take a gander outside. You, you see any holiday cheer out there? You see any festive holiday cheer out there? You think there's any Christmas left in this world? The doctor rubbed her eyes. She consulted her notes. Can, can you tell me again about the dream? A pained sigh. Then the words came out on puffs of anguished, noxious breath. I'm climbing out of the sleigh I, after I made it crash. I, do, I don't exactly know how I did it, why I did it, how I got there to, into that sleigh, but I, I killed the old man. And I climbed out of this sleigh because cause the sleigh's on fire and the, the reindeer. The old man's voice broke then, tumbled like a house of cards, and the sobbing started up again. They're all dead. They're burned. And then, I, and then I'm running. See, it's horrible. It's horrible. All them reindeer burning because of me. Okay. All right. That's, that's, that's good. That's enough. 
Dr. Eisel rose, recognizing the signs of agitation creeping in, latent psychosis. That's enough for today, John. She went over to the door, unlocked it, cracked it open, and called for the orderlies. They took the old man back to his room and locked him inside, and for another few endless days they observed him without bothering him or talking to him much. And it was late the next Sunday afternoon, after dinner, after the hospital had quieted down and the second shift nurses had all come on the clock to play their card games and drink their chase and Sanborn and gossip their gossip, that the old man heard the first faint noises, elves on the roof. It was almost as though they had been summoned by the amnesiac's interview earlier that week, as though the old man had tempted fate by giving the doctors a deeper insight into the nature of these killer elves. The old man stiffened on his bunk suddenly like a weather vane, his skinny neck craning and cocking as he listened. His room, or his cell as he had come to think of it, was on the fourth floor of the sanitarium, the topmost story. The building's roof was directly overhead, and right then, right then the old man could hear the faint padding of tiny humanoid footsteps along the tar paper rooftop. Lurching out of bed, the amnesiac hobbled over to the door in his stained white gown. Hey, nurse! Hey there! Anybody? Nurse! Anybody there? The old man pounded his knotty fist on the door, his sagging, bony ass visible and jiggling out the back of his gown. The viewing slat slid suddenly open, revealing the face of a middle-aged nurse in cat's eye glasses. Sir, you're not due for your medication until... Nurse, please! I'm, I'm having... I'm, I'm having pains in my chest! The lock clicked, and the door began to swing open when the old man suddenly shoved with all his might. The force of the door bursting open, as well as the shock of it, sent the poor nurse pinwheeling backward. She banged into a desk, sending coffee cups and paper flying as the old man lunged out the open doorway and into the corridor with fists clenched and eyes bright with alarm. They're here! By God, they're here! For a moment, the old man froze with indecision, gazing up and down the deserted corridor, the sudden roar of glass breaking in some nearby room making him start, followed by the scream of a patient. <sighs> the old man scurried away from the noise, his bare feet padding on cold linoleum, moving toward the north end of the hallway, toward the great arched window overlooking the fire escape. He didn't look back. He didn't look over his shoulder, but had he looked, had he found the courage to look, he would have seen the oddest sight. Doors opening along the corridor, nurses and orderlies coming out of rooms, eyes wide and shifting back and forth, completely oblivious to the intruders appearing only inches away from them birthing themselves from a laundry dumbwaiter near the nurse's desk at the opposite end of the hall like two unformed blackened fetuses. The elves hopped onto the tile with 
preternatural nimbleness. There he is, Seamus! One of the intruders let out a cry that was heard only by the old man at the far end of the hallway as he clawed at the latch on that filthy window, his palsied hands seizing up, his lungs heaving for air, his heart racing as he pried and prayed for deliverance. All the remaining souls on the fourth floor at that moment, nurses, orderlies, an intern named Dr. Malachi Toombs, heard only the strange clanging of invisible wind chimes. Or at least, that's the effect an elf's cry has on auditory nerves of normal people. An elf's voice is incomprehensible, even at high volumes, to an adult. At last, the old man got the window latch open and managed to yank up the sash and punch the screen open. He squeezed his slender bones through the gap and out into the winds of January which engulfed the precipice. Dizziness coursed through his malnourished brain, and he clutched at the wrought iron for purchase and tried not to look down at the vertigo-inducing drop. Traffic noises wafted up at him, and the light and space of a dying city blurred his vision as the intruders closed in behind him. For the love of Christmas, don't let him slip away again, Dooley. Grab him! Grab him! Eyewitnesses on the street at that point would later spin quite a yarn regarding what happened next. The consensus was this. The old man was taking his first tentative yet frantic step down the wrought iron ladder, unaware that the ladder was affixed to a rotting hinge when the ladder gave way. It swung the amnesiac across the adjacent alley. He managed to desperately cling to that pinion like a giant worm being cast on a line. The old man crashed into a row of burning trash cans aligned at the mouth of the alley, their meager flames flickering and warming a group of morose men standing in the next morning's breadline. The impact of the amnesiac's feeble bones sent sparks spuming sixteen feet into the air and sent the men scattering their fedoras flinging into space and the rusty oil cans rolling every which way. The incident created such havoc, such an unexpected disturbance of noise and chaos that nobody even noticed the old man crawling toward the street and then vanishing around the corner only to hobble away into the anonymous city. Nobody saw the elves scaling down the side of the building like winged monkeys. Too late. Too late to catch the old man or even discern the direction into which he had fled. On second thought in the interests of precision, let us clarify and amend that latter sentence to instead say that no adult saw the elves. Lunatic Escapes Nuthouse, Orphan Spies, Pygmy Invaders, Cleveland, January 11th. A rogue patient at the H.P. Eldritch Inebreed Asylum escaped Sunday evening in a daring plunge from the fourth floor window. The man was elderly and being treated for a nervous disorder, reported Dr. Toombs of the hospital staff. He was here on an involuntary state commitment, but I assure you he is not in the least bit dangerous. Currently at large. 
Citizens of Greater Cayuga County are asked to be on the lookout for a man that fits the following description. Six foot one, 110 pounds, gray hair, possibly arthritic and stooped. The man was last seen on Pearson Street near the Catholic Mission Breadline on Sunday night. If a citizen spots this individual, they are asked to call the Sheriff's Department at Baker Hill 217. A tall tale. In a related story, a child, age six, a resident of the hospital's third-floor orphanage, is said to have seen two intruders enter the hospital only minutes before the escape. The boy said they were pygmies, claims nurse Hattie Stevenson, the matron of the orphanage. In the boy's own words, they were pygmies with magical weapons, and they looked real sore. Stories of a less sensational nature, mostly factual and signs, any mention of pygmies, also appeared in the Cleveland Plain Dealer and the Cleveland Press. By February, sightings of the mysterious old goat were being reported across the northeast on an almost hourly basis. People were claiming they had seen the escapee hiding in barns, in the shadows of alleys and abandoned buildings, amidst bread lines and soup kitchens and among the desperate masses. Over the ensuing weeks, word leaked out regarding the old man's alleged psychosis, and the dark irony of it all captured the crestfallen imagination of the battered citizenry. The man who killed St. Nick became a gloomy cause celebre, Stories were exchanged around flaming trash cans, folk tales manufactured in hushed reverence. The true whereabouts of the old man, however, were a far more slippery matter. Throughout the gray spring months of that year, the amnesiac managed to elude both elf and authority, tacking westward in fits and starts, zigzagging across the dwindling tributaries of the Ohio, trudging across the wasted hollows of coal mine country, across the Ozark Plateau, and into the vast wasteland of Dust Bowl states. His demeanor, unknown to those who hunted him, was one of utter despair, a fate worse than death. In fact, the final seven months of his flight across Missouri and Kansas, made the first three and a half years of his exile seem like a picnic. He rarely ate. He lost another eight pounds and was nearly incoherent by the time it was all said and done. He had begun to believe that he was not human, had never been human. He was a demon, an assassin sent by the devil, and he had killed Christmas as part of some apocalyptic plot to bring about the end days, or maybe to bring about something worse than the end days, maybe the end of hope. By the time he reached Childress County, Texas, a dirt-poor swath of desolate scrubland on the southeast edge of the Dust Bowl, he had lost track of the time of year. Relentless drought had sandblasted away the colors of the turning seasons. Now, one season looked like the next, an endless succession of sepia-hued haze. In fact, by the time the old man, a walking cadaver in rags and dusty pelts, had stumbled into the tiny, hard-scrabble outposts of Kirkland, just after dawn, he had lost track of everything but the endless agony of his guilt. Huddling throughout that day, 
in a deserted, reeking chicken coop on the outskirts of town. He simply waited for some merciful end by way of either elf or succubus to put him out of his misery. He didn't know that it was December and his long journey was indeed about to come to an end. He didn't know that it would happen almost precisely at the stroke of seven that very evening. Official accounts of that last afternoon vary, depending upon the source. Aside from single chapters and numerous works on Dust Bowl folklore, there are two volumes in existence today devoted solely to this case. Christmas Reckoning, The Little-Known History of the Kirkland Standoff, by Eric Larson, had become the most popular best-selling of the modern commercial works. In the book, Mr. Larson paints the final moments of the old man in almost Shakespearean tones. The Man Who Stole Christmas, by Vincent Bugliosi, treats the showdown as more of an indictment of early 20th century jurisprudence and the mistreatment of the mentally ill. There are also several oral histories of that last day on file in the great archives of the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. One such account, a field recording made for Folkways Records by Moses Ash, is provided by a Texas ranger named Harlem Wickham, told on his deathbed in a halting, emphysemic wheeze. The lawman recounts a story that many have either disputed as fabrication or the delirious ravings of the terminal. Wickham, alas, was present that last afternoon and was unequivocal in his belief that he had seen something miraculous. His account full of contradictions and changing facts until the day he died. The final struggle, according to Ranger Wickham, began with the advent of one of the greatest dust storms in recorded history. The weather across the arid plains had been unsettled for weeks, and that afternoon, two opposing fronts smashed up against each other over Oklahoma. The resulting Scirocco churned up half the iron-tainted topsoil of the panhandle. In those tumultuous years, people across the western states had grown accustomed to the red dust maelstroms. Schools would close down, and day would turn to night, and people would hunker down in their basements, if they were lucky enough to have a basement, and cover themselves with wet sheets to stay cool in the oven-like storm. Entire towns would virtually vanish in the scarlet plague. That afternoon, the old man heard the noise of the approaching storm before he saw it. Stirred from his rancid coop, he peered out the slatted doorway in the direction of the western horizon. What he saw in the dying twilight must have turned his bloodless veins cold because the horizon was no longer there. A giant monolith of rust had unfurled a mile away and was coming directly toward him, gobbling everything in its path, swallowing the countryside and turning the dusk into midnight darkness. Although no one can be sure 
the amnesiac must have regarded that roaring tidal wave of dust as a sign, a portent, a variation of the revelations to John, the end of the world, because he realized it was accompanied by a softer noise, a noise he had been hearing all day, a noise from his dreams, a noise now all but drowned by the freight train roar of the dust cloud. The lower noise came from the opposite direction, from the east, a series of tiny, angry, swift footsteps, unearthly fleet footsteps, crossing the parched, cracked earth. The old man had no choice now but to flee directly into the oncoming deluge. The elves arrived at the chicken coop just in time to see the object of their three-and-a-half-year pursuit a hundred yards away, plunging into the wall of crimson haze. They would not lose him this time. They refused to lose him. They would rather die than fail. Trembling with excitement, they circled around the coop, carrying weapons of exotic design, fashioned from brass and gold, their musket-like muzzles as delicate as buttercups, forged in the cellars of their magic workplace. Seamus, the elder elf, motioned frantically with the barrel of his gun. Take the north flank! I'll take the south! The elves darted off into divergent directions on nimble feet, weapons raised and ready, until they too were swallowed by the vast blanket of hell dust. The light went away, and the night swallowed the day, and the landscape vanished into a nimbus of blood-red wind which choked the breath out of the earth and shattered windows and tossed tumbled weeds across a hundred feet, stretches into the sky and deafened the elves with its cacophony. And still they closed in on their quarry. At this point, the only other living souls in the general vicinity entered the fray. They came hurling into the leading edge of the dust storm on horseback, these three brave souls on a pair of mounts, an old muscular bay mare carrying a man and a boy, and a young Appaloosa hauling a single man, all of them, human and animal alike, coughing and spitting as the red wind buried them alive. One of these witnesses, the man on the Appaloosa, a man who had come all the way from Cleveland, Ohio, yanked on the reins and scuttled to a stop before the storm had a chance to upend both him and the steed. Forget it! Forget it! Let the old nutcake go! yelled the orderly from Eldritch Asylum, dropping to the earth, his voice muffled from a bandana across his mouth. Stay with the horses! bellowed the old ranger, Harlan Wickham, as he pulled back on the lead and grabbed his younger passenger around the waist, Wickham squinted to see through the flurry of red dust in front of him as he slid off his horse with a little boy under his arm like a sack of potatoes. I can still see him out there! The pygmies! The kid said, squirming in the ranger's burly arm, hollering as loud as his little voice would manage. 
The boy had also come all the way from Ohio. The ranger had sent for the child after reading his strange account in the Amarillo Daily News. Wickham had gotten the idea after tracking the amnesiac across the barren rose fields of East Childress for the last 17 days, watching the old cuss dodging invisible tormentors and noticing ghostly footprints forming and vanishing in the dust. The boy from the orphanage held the key. Somehow Wickham felt this in his bones, even though his fellow rangers thought Wickham had lost his mind. There! See? Straight ahead! The boy was pointing at the crimson nothingness while continuing to squirm in Wickham's arms, and it took quite a bit of effort for the ranger to brandish his forty-five caliber Schofield with his free hand without breaking stride. It was impossible to see through the pink soup more than a cow's length ahead of him. There! There! Wickham raised a bead on the swirling dust devils ahead of him, squinting through watery eyes. He could barely see the shadow of spindly old coot, about three stone throws away, arms flailing, stumbling wildly back and forth, rushing headlong across the hardback. Meanwhile, the little boy was pointing off in another direction, like an English spaniel on the scent. He was pointing at invisible pygmies of his dreams. They got guns! Look out, mister! Duck! Duck! The ranger swung the muzzle of his Schofield at the area to his right and he started to squeeze off a shot when the strangest sound rang out over the roar of the storm. It was a cross between a gigantic church bell being struck and a clap of thunder. The ranger flinched at the bang and then felt a tremendous blow to his solar plexus. The impact nearly lifted the tall man out of his boots, taking his breath away knocking off his Stetson hat, snapping the buckle of his Sam Brown belt, and flinging him backward through the storm with the gentle violence of a leaf on the wind. The Schofield spun free, and the orphan slipped from Wickham's grasp and landed in a drift of tumbleweed. Eyes blinking against the dust, the little boy gaped at what was transpiring in the flame-colored miasma in front of him. The two pygmies had converged predatorily on the ranger, who was now blinking fitfully, trying to sit up, trying to see, trying to make sense of what had just happened. But oddly, the child could see the ranger wasn't hurt. In fact, the ranger looked eerily replenished, as if he had just been baptized by a benevolent savior. No bullet hole riddled the ranger's body. No wound sullied his form. The orphan now saw the pygmies, unseen by the ranger, kneeling down on either side of the man. From their anxious, worried expressions, it was clear that the little ones were making sure the ranger was okay. What the orphan didn't know was that elf weapons don't shoot projectiles. Elf guns operate on principles antithetical to mortal weaponry. Elf weapons are designed to suck the bad from people's hearts. Like a bolt of rejuvenating tonic, the blast of an elf pistol removes injury. At that moment, in fact, amidst the raging red storm, the little boy from Cleveland probably could have surmised as much because he now saw the ranger sitting up with a 
a beatific kind of smile on his face, a smile that said volumes. Here was a man who needed to tell his wife he loved her, who needed to visit the ocean. Like a blind man who had just been dipped in a miracle spring, the ranger could suddenly see everything clearly, and he seemed to fix his gaze on the pygmies as he wiped a tear of joy from his wind-burned features and started to say, Who the hell are you? Dooley, the younger elf, the one with all the questions, interrupted the scene. Psst, Dooley, one moment, Seamus. The elder elf did not take his fervid gaze off the ranger. He spoke above the noise of the storm. Are ye all right, sir? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Apparently the ranger could see fleeting glimpses of the ghostly elf. Yes, I am indeed. Dooley, look. At last, the elder sprite glanced up from the fallen lawman and saw that his comrade was indicating something off in the middle distance in the vague halo of twilight a hundred yards off, made all the more ethereal by the last shreds of dust storm raking across the sunset. The storm was passing, the tail already departing, moving eastward like the caboose of a demonic train receding into the dusk, leaving the landscape a sand-blasted shambles. And out there on the edge of a downtrodden little ranch, its modest corral void of livestock, its ground seared by the relentless drought, there lay a tangle of barbed wire blown up against a split-rail gate. In the nucleus of that knotted mess, caught like a bug in a web, lay the dying amnesiac. Come, Seamus, the elder one murmured with a reverence approaching prayer. Time to finish it! At precisely 6.59 p.m., as the man who killed Santa Claus lay snarled and spent in the tangle of barbed wire, the small, dark assassins approached cautiously from the east. To the amnesiac, they looked like evil spirits emerging from the dwindling extremities of the dust storm, and he considered struggling, but he realized almost simultaneously with that innate impulse that the running was over, and it was time to surrender to fate, and it was time to die for his sins. He tried to hold his head up as the tiny ones loomed in the wan, filtered twilight, As they drew near, the dusky light shimmered off the tulip-shaped muzzles of their weapons. Easy there, Captain, the old man thought he heard one of them say. Go easy there, sir. The old man started to weep. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to do it. The bounty hunters paused on either side of the knotted mess of wire coated with bloody dusk, each one kneeling with musket cradled. The storm had almost completely diminished now, and the silence that fell upon that wasted terrain seemed to stretch all the way to the Rio Grande. Within that alien hush, the sound of voices softly droning far off in the ether could be heard. Be still now. Be still. 
muttered the older one. He gently loosened the tangle. The old man felt the pressure ease off his skeletal limbs, his bony hip points, and his scourged bare feet. I, I didn't mean to kill him. The old man's dust-clogged voice was barely a ragged croak. The distant voices were more discernible now. They were singing, singing the carol of the bells. The sound wafted over the barrens like a salve on the wounded land. You didn't kill him, Captain, the younger one said as he gently cradled the old man's shoulders and helped him sit up. All at once, the land seemed to go still, the very air calming as though a switch had been thrown. I, I, di I didn't kill him? Confused, dazed, the amnesiac glanced over his shoulder and saw the ramshackle ranch house, fifty yards away on the edge of a rotten, wind-scarred fence. It rose out of the gloom like an apparition, the hand-hewn logs and timbers frosted with dust, a single window burning with candlelight, the silhouettes of poor migrant family visible inside that window, singing around a meager Christmas tree. The realization washed over the old amnesiac like a warm wave. It was December 24th, 1932, Christmas Eve. Is this a dream? The old man wanted to know. The elves sat down in the dirt next to him. I surely wish it was, the older elf said with a weary sigh, brushing the dust from his jodhpur pants. You gave us quite a scare there, Captain. I, I, I didn't kill Santa? Seamus the elf smiled at him then the warmest smile ever proffered in the mortal world. You didn't kill Santa, sir. You are Santa. The old man froze. Before another word was spoken, the synapses deep inside his brain fired like a barely smoldering ember coming to life. A memory, a memory of a mid-air collision Christmas morning, four long years ago, swooping down off the frozen Pacific, the reindeers blind in the blizzard, navigating by instinct over British Columbia. The way it happened, sir, chimed in the one named Dooley, was you didn't see the new radio tower they put in north of Prince George. <laughs> they call it progress, but the world ain't ready for such progress, you ask me. Oh, oh, Lord, 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 the old man uttered, remembering how the tower had come out of nowhere, striking the front flank of his team that terrible morning, and how the sleigh had fallen out of the sky, engulfed in sparks and fire, and how the old man had hit his head on the great iron struts, thrown, thrown senseless into a drift, the impact wiping away his memory, leaving behind only the crumb of a false impression that he had somehow brought about the accident. I remember now. Oh, Lord, I remember, he moaned, the carol warbling on the wind all around him. Seamus the elf spoke up. Sir, I, I don't mean to be presump 
Presumptuous is what you're trying to say, you get, the older elf corrected. Seamus nodded. Right, it's just that, that, Captain, what the lad is trying to say in his awkward manner is you probably best be coming along with us, seeing how it's the sacred evening and all, and we still got time to do some good. The old man stared at the elf for a long, long, a good long time, then took in a deep breath and stretched his tired, depleted limbs. Already his body was transforming, replenishing itself with fat. His face seemed to soften in the half-light of dusk as he rose on creaking joints. God bless you, boys. Both of you, he murmured using Seamus's shoulder for balance as the elves escorted him away. God bless you for finding me, now and forevermore! In the moments and hours and days that followed, the eyewitnesses present that night, the ranger and the orphan and the orderly from Eldritch Asylum, found themselves victims of their own amnesia. The sight of the old man being ushered away into the night by elves fading into half-formed memories as in those of a dream. The ranger even tried to capture what had happened that night in the pages of a personal journal, but over the years even that documentation had been lost. He was never supposed to see what he had seen and the hidden world eventually obliterated the images from his consciousness. In time, the events of 1932 melded into the bland stew of history, that amorphous cauldron of recriminations and subjective analysis that always lands on some outer orbit of the actual truth. But one thing remains steadfast and inexorable in the history of the Great Depression— A mere six and a half weeks before the uncanny rendezvous in the dust storm, the governor of New York, a complex man who suffered from a paralytic disease, managed to rise through the ranks of national politics and get elected as the 32nd president, a number strangely synchronous with the year itself. Announcing in his acceptance speech, I pledge you... I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. Franklin Delano Roosevelt had help with his new deal, which would eventually awaken the country from the ghastly slumber of the Depression. Christmas had returned, and Santa Claus now wore protective headgear each time he ventured out on that magic night of nights. Wow, that was impressive. I mean, I've heard you do readings before, but that was... <laughs> I, 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 Crazy I had no idea if it was going to work. <laughs> I mean, I'd never read it aloud. I mean, how you keep track of all the voices, the news voice, 
I have to say, I had to like muffle myself. I was laughing so hard. I've never heard you do that. That was hilarious. I love the story. I loved it when I finished it and just read it to myself and sent it off to Germany. And the next thing I knew, I saw it in German. It's part of, you know, my magical thinking about Christmas. And, you know, it's a lovely part of my life. I've always loved the holidays. And, and I, you know, I never dreamed that I would fall so deeply in love with a woman so good at <laughs> decorations and Christmas festivities and wrapping presents. You are like an elf. <laughs> and yet you're Jewish. I'm a Jewish elf. <laughs> <laughs> I have gotten good at the tree. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about that. What you know, why is that? Why are you so good at it? What 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 speaks to you about you know the holiday? I've always loved having a Christmas I Christmas tree when we were little. I mean when we were celebrating Hanukkah, we would have and my dad would do a whole Santa routine where we'd all like get in bed and then we'd hear him do this whole like knock knock knock, you know, hi there, Mr. Norton, and how are the kids? <laughs> and we would just giggle in bed and like wait for him to and then we'd run upstairs. So we did the whole thing, even as little Jews. <laughs> <laughs> so sweet. It was very cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but most, you know, assimilated modern Jewish families kind of do both just for fun. There's no law that says you can't have a, you know, the menorah and, and a little, you know, Christmas tree. Right. Well, Hanukkah and Christmas are so completely different. I mean, Hanukkah, yeah. take Christmas away and the whole holidays... It's like Labor Day. I mean, it's like right. you know, we survived this thing, and we, you know, it, it's really not about like, you know, right. someone was born. I mean, it, right. <laughs> it's more like surviving, you know, our family surviving and generations surviving and the oil. They had nothing. They right. had la- you know, so, <laughs> so right. it's sort of a, not a big big gift thing, you know, it's like Hanukkah gifts were like little cute things and here's a little, you know, because they were one every night. Chocolate coins. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> little wooden dreidels. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sweet. But yeah. No, it was cute. It's actually when I'm thinking like saying it out loud, I'm suddenly like that's a really like fond memory of my mom, my dad, my brother and I, you know, that was really all four of us just like um, I've always lit menorah and I've always done the little prayer every night. I might have missed a few, but <laughs> for the most part, <laughs> I stick with it every year and I've got my old menorah from growing up. Right. And, uh, I love doing that, even if I'm just all by myself. Well, plus you have a, a super special kind of bonus around the holidays, which is your birthday is on the 23rd of December. Right. Well, that's a, one way to look at it. <laughs> the other way to look at it is how I looked at it. It was like, here you go. Here's your birthday, Hanukkah, Christmas, <laughs> New Year's gift. You know, it all right. just got bundled in. I got thrown. Right. It's another thing we have in common because my birthday is January 2nd. Yeah, we're like the bookends of the yeah. holidays. By my, by the time my birthday rolls around on January 2nd, people are so hungover and bored and broke. Exactly. <laughs> I still, you know, love the holidays. <laughs> Me too. Although I, it's a love-hate relationship, too, because holidays can be super depressing. And, and many people, you know, have a tough time around the holidays. Sure. And, you know. Especially this year. I, I was just going to say, 
you know, it's an unprecedented holiday because we're supposed to postpone it until next year, basically. Yeah. Which I, as I, as I literally had a little synapse fire while I was reading the story, that this story is kind of apropos. On many levels, we are sort of experiencing a similar... Santa Claus is, has amnesia right now. Right. Santa Claus is, you know, the holidays are, are put on hold. And we are in a, like a, a depression, if not like a classic financial depression, like a, you know, symbolic depression. Yeah, that's very true. And also, we, we're recording this in early December. You know, we don't know, but experts say that this is going to... The pandemic that we've been talking about all year that really inspired the beginning of this podcast. That's true. The beginning of our series of podcasts. You know, we've been told by the experts and the scientists that this is going to be the worst six weeks ever in recorded history. The worst in terms of a, a, you know, a a pandemic. Happy holidays, everybody. (laughs) Merry Christmas to all. (laughs) It's like Debbie Downer. (laughs) And to all good luck with that. (laughs) <laughs> Debbie Downer. I'm just having mem- the memory of when your family was here for Christmas and I was lighting my menorah and your mom and your dad were sitting in here with me and I was telling them about it. And then I said, you know, you guys, if you want to hear me do the prayer. And it was like, they said, oh, yeah, absolutely. We want to hear you. And I start. So I like light the candle and you have to light the first candle <laughs> to light the other candles with. So I light the first candle and I pick it out and I start lighting the other. And I'm like, Baruch know. <laughs> and your mom's like, hold on. Todd's got to hear this. Todd. <laughs> she calls Todd in from the kitchen, and I'm, I'm literally like holding the candle going, okay, we need to start over again. <laughs> so I'm just like, <laughs> it was hysterical. <laughs> it was so, yeah. so your mom. <laughs> Such a Diane, Diane moment. Yeah, uh, when I was a kid, the Christmas was a time of stories because there was always a Christmas episode in every show that I love, it's like, yeah. you know, Night Gallery, Twilight Zone, there's always like a Christmas episode, an eerie kind of Christmas story. And there was a tradition in England that went back, you know, into the 19th century of Christmas ghost stories. Probably, you know, A Christmas Carol came out of that tradition. It was the most famous ghost story, you know, for Christmas. I, I wrote a Christmas story every year for quite a few years, um, and I still have them. I wrote them, you know, longhand and everything, and I still have them hilarious and terrible and naive and <laughs> juvenilia but <laughs> christmas itself was never really much of anything i mean we my birth first of all my birthday did was you like go to an, movies and have chinese food on christmas day <laughs> probably at some point i don't know i don't even remember see that sounds festive to me <laughs> yeah actually but i mean i've actually spent many christmases with my ex-husband and now, you know, with your family. And even when I was, like, first living here in Chicago, I went to Midnight Mass with Connie and her family. And I usually just get adopted to something. Right. But my birthday is always... I never had, like, the big birthday party. I mean, when I was little, I did. And I imagine it was probably, like, a week or two early or something. And we'd all go to, like, Perkins and have a big... Right. <laughs> all dressed up. But that was little, little... It serves so many purposes, you know, Christmas and, and the holidays and New Year's and, in our case, birthdays. It all, it all right. falls at the end of the year, but it it seems almost like an ancient ritual to end the year, like with some kind of 
you know, ritualistic celebration of being alive. And so it's, it's still a strange dichotomy of feelings. It's a very melancholy time for many people, maybe most people. Everybody goes, oh, it's, a, it's fun, it's, you know, it's, it's festive, it's, 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 it's lovely, you raise a glass and you toast and everybody's all happy and everything. Well, not really. It, there's a, there's an under, there's a other, a flip side of the coin. It's very melancholy and bittersweet. And you remember other Christmases and you remember those who have passed away and, and they're not with you this Christmas, you know, and it's, you can't, you kind of can't avoid it. Do you feel that way? Like at the end of the year celebrations that are so part of your life? Because, you know. I don't, I don't feel melancholy. I mean, you know, this year obviously just kind of sucked in general. But Yeah, as, right. But it's as, a general overall feeling. But, you know, since our Halloween episode, we had Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving, even though it was just you and I and we couldn't go anywhere, you know, we like did it up and we got dressed up and you made this fabulous dinner and we sat at the dining table instead of at the couch and TV and listened to vinyl all day. And it was so much fun. And to, you know, at that point, you appreciate what you do have. And like, even though there's a, I miss my family like crazy. So I know, totally I, prefer uh, so, uh, this way to celebrate. Yeah. And so I'm alone. Right. Well, it is that. I mean, that's another thing. I mean, I was so bombed. I wasn't going to be able to see my family. And all of a sudden it was Wednesday uh, before Thanksgiving and pouring down rain. And I suddenly had I was like running a quick errand and I suddenly had the realization like, oh, my God, we don't have to travel today. We're not driving in the rain. And I just get to go home and relax and be with my cat and my husband and watch TV. And, you know, so there's a silver lining to Right, you know, <laughs> right. Being able to just not stress about the holidays at all. Right. You know, I'm always grateful for what I have, and so I'm grateful this year, too. What's your favorite Christmas movie? I, don't know, I guess it's A Wonderful Life. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty standard, I That's know. It's a classic. Isn't Love Actually kind of like a big Christmas? Yeah. There's a big Christmas Absolutely. Part of it? Oh, yeah. totally. It's a Christmas movie. Yeah. And also... I have always kind of um, equated when Harry met Sally because when Harry met yeah. Sally was like Christmas movie. It was so like holiday driven, right. you know, the right. little points in the, right, in the right. movie. Right. So I always think of that too. Yeah, but I, I think mine is um, White Christmas with Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye yeah, and Rosemary good. Clooney. Yeah, that actually is great. Yeah, yeah, you showed that to me. It just you can't watch that without feeling good. Yeah. Plus, there's a great my one of my favorite lines from it is. Um, you know, Bing Bing is being kind of cool to the to the girls, and you know, and he and he's like, "Come on, everybody's got an angle. What's your angle?" <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> everybody's got an angle <laughs> in a Christmas movie. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll have to listen to that to cheer ourselves up after this podcast. <laughs> What's your favorite holiday cocktail? Well, first of all, I have to. I'm drinking rosé tonight. I wanted to. Throwing what oh we're yeah, drinking. what we're drinking. <laughs> I'm drinking beer because it's silent. That's true. <laughs> I've been no, I've you've been, I've been chastised. You've been for forbidden from ice cubes. Cubes. <laughs> Um <laughs> Yeah, you don't you don't have memories of like your favorite holiday cookie because you guys didn't really celebrate it. No, my list is completely useless. <laughs> my goyim list. <laughs> so. 
Okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you this. What is your favorite holiday memory? Doesn't matter the denomination, the religion. What is your favorite holiday memory? Well, I probably have to go back to that memory of my my dad being Santa Claus. I mean, it, you know, we we did we did Hanukkah, but then we had the Christmas tree. I don't remember like what night, like if it was Christmas Eve night that my dad would do this. So, it, but it was only one time. I think I don't think he did it multiple nights. So. And then, and then that night we would get big gifts, you know, right? Like a bike or some skis or something like that. But, um, but we didn't do that every night of Hanukkah. So yeah, so my dad, you know, doing the whole Santa routine, talking to himself, and then my mom and my brother and I would be all Aww. in my little twin bed, just giggling and like waiting till we can go upstairs. Um, so that's probably. I would say my fondest holiday memory. That's awesome. I'm, I'm visualizing Atticus Finch dressed up as Santa Claus. <laughs> well, he didn't dress up. He just. Didn't. I, mean, I know, but that in my in my imagination, that was like, I'm Atticus Finch, but I'm playing Santa Claus right now. Yeah. I'm referring to her father being a great lawyer, and me, you know, sucking up to him and calling him Atticus Finch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, D- Dick did not wear the Santa outfit. Okay. <laughs> he just did the, like, oh, knock-knock-knock right. knock routine, right. had a conversation. He was, All right, see you next year. He was Santa's doorman. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So what's your favorite holiday memory? Getting the uh, red Sears Silvertone guitar in its case that had an amplifier in the case, built into the case. That was my best. See, that's the thing about Christians. We're just greedy bastards. We just want things. <laughs> Which goes totally against Jesus. You know, he, he, he hated that materialism. He, like, beat up the money changers. <laughs> the, the Christian holidays have become so rife with greed and worried that you didn't spend enough on one sibling and the other sibling's going to be pissed because they didn't get the same exact dollar amount and they've got their calculator calculating up the dollar amount that they got. Jesus beat up people? Well, he was pissed about the money changers <laughs> okay. because he hated Jesus. I will say this, being a, you know, heathen, a, you know, an agnostic, Jesus was a cool guy. As To quote... Chris Christofferson. Jesus was a Capricorn. He ate organic food. He believed in peace and love, and he never wore no shoes. He hung around with a funky bunch of friends, which I think is a reference to him hanging around with prostitutes and drug addicts. <laughs> right. But anyway, Jesus was was like a was like a hippie. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that part I know. Yeah. I was so, just a little th- thrown by the. It's lovely. I, in, in terms of a deity, I'll take Jesus, you know, he's, he's fantastic. The trouble is everybody's gone in weird different directions over the millennia. Yeah. <laughs> Go on. What was your question? I was holiday? Just, <laughs> spirit? <laughs> I asked what your favorite holiday was and you said it was. Oh, it was so. my Sears Silverdome guitar. Right. When, when I was a little kid, my mom and, and when my grandfather was alive, they used to tease me about it as an adult 
but they used to say, oh my God, you were so pathetic. You, you cut out, you, you took your mother's Montgomery Ward and J.C. Penney's catalogs. And in those days, they were the size of doorstops. They were like eight inches thick. Right. And they had these, yeah, it's several pages on electric guitars. And then, and my grandpa and mother used to say, oh my God, you, you, you used to cut them out with little kid scissors and then put them on your bulletin board, all the different electric guitars. And my grandpa finally said to my mother, you know what, can, can we just get him an electric guitar this year? It's, I, I can't take it anymore. Do they really call you pathetic? That's, I think that's the word. It's pretty harsh think, for grandparents. I think that's the word my mother used. My grandfather wouldn't say that, but as far as you know. <laughs> as far as I know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that was my greatest Christmas memory. Isn't that pathetic? It's like a thing. It's an object. It's materialist. Well, I do. I have to say, I do enjoy Christmases with your family, and especially when the boys are together and everybody breaks out the instruments and jam sessions, and um, it's so much fun. Well, so I've actually back at you when I'm at Passover. I can't say that I have a lot of like memories of being with you on Hanukkah because it's just not. It's well, you've been with me on Hanukkah. You just I know, I know, aware but, I, but, of it. <laughs> but I'm not. I guess I mean family memories of being with your family and celebrating Hanukkah. Right, it's, family, it's just, family's Passover. Yeah, that's, that's and, and the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Yom right. Kippur. That's what I remember the most. It's the same compliment back at you as you gave my family. It's, your family is completely festive, fun. No, we're right? uh, we're we're good. We're good people. <laughs> Although I was surprised to find out when I was, I don't even know what we were talking about, but I had to check. I was, I was making a joke to Amy about something that like, there's not many Jewish serial killers. Once I said it, or once I started typing it, I thought I'm going to check real quick and make sure. And then there was like this huge list and like everybody oh, was on it. More than David Berkowitz? Yeah. Name some other like famous Jewish serial killers. You know, you don't, I, I mean, I agree with you. You don't think of Jewish serial killers. You know, my my uh, theory was that y- you'll never find a serial killer named Murray. Well, I don't know about that. I, I know. So but you're saying there really is a serial killer named Murray? You know what? There's a Harvey Murray. Harvey Murray Glattman. What? <laughs> I've never heard of him before. <laughs> what did he do? He was the glamour girl slayer. Oh, my God. And he would use uh, posing as a professional photographer to lure his victims with the promise of a modeling career. Oh, my God. I smell a limited series. (laughs) All right. We should probably uh, not talk about serial killers anymore. (laughs) We need to, like, end this on a happy note. Happy holidays, Yes. Well, all right. Uh, you know what? Let me start uh, because I'm traditionally the uh, you know doom and gloom dude. Uh, Definitely, and, and then I'll let you cap it off with something lovely and sweet, and that's how we'll end uh, the podcast. But let me just say that uh, earlier today, and we're recording this on December eighth. December eighth. Yes. Uh, so you know we're we're sort of entering into the holiday season. So I'll just say that this year it may be the loveliest version of that 
ever on one level, which is there's hope. There's hope because, you know, even though we've lost a lot of people, a lot of people have died that didn't maybe need to, we still have hope. Uh, And I just saw a little B-roll on a news show today, a little clip uh, uh, of a woman in England, an elderly woman getting the first vaccine. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, that's that's my Christmas gift, that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Jill, (laughs) your thoughts? Well, I did did have a really (laughs) sweet thing that I saw on... I guess it's on Facebook or Instagram. I don't know. I can never really keep track. Um, but it was a, a mother who a videotaped her little girl every day when the mailman would come. The little girl would come to the window and dance for the mailman, and so the mailman would dance with her. So literally every single day, the little girl waits for the mailman, and then and she and it's a video from like behind the girl, and you can see the mailman, and it's right. the sweetest thing. It was so beautiful and just. And then oh I even God. had a video from uh, the neighbors across the street of the mailman dancing. Like, how cute. And the little girl in her little, like, footy pajamas. <laughs> it's just too much. That's fantastic. So, yeah, there are a lot of uh, beautiful things to be grateful for. Absolutely. Yeah. You are my beautiful thing that I'm grateful for. Okay. I'm thankful for you. <laughs> I'm thankful we don't want to kill each other. <laughs> Not even close. Not even close. All right. Well, with that. We're we're like little nesting dolls. (laughs) Well, with that, I think we can wrap it up for everybody. All Um, right. Well, I I want to thank everybody for sitting through this long, epic. It was epic, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. It was like a very special edition of our podcast. But thank you for allowing us, for humoring us. Yes. And uh, we'll, we'll... we won't see you, but we'll talk to you again in 2021. In 2021. And until then, peace. Peace. Peace out. Peace out. A special thanks to the great and talented Jeb Boninsinga and his great and talented family, wife Allison and son Calvin, for the amazing holiday mixes of the Riptones original music used throughout this special episode. All right. Love you. Love you. All right. Bye. Bye. The music for This Should Be a Podcast is Close Shave by the Riptones. And like everything good, it's available on Spotify.